HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Egg Restaurant, located at 109 North 3rd Street in Brooklyn, New York. For more information, visit eggrestaurant.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest today, it's a good one, Kevin Zraeli. Kevin was at Windows of the World when it opened in 1976 till it closed on that day that no one will ever forget, 9-11. We'll also celebrate Kevin's appearance tasting a vintage Cali cab in his honor on the weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Few people have had an impact on the American wine scene like our guest, Kevin Zraeli. Kevin is a true wine influencer, launching generations of today's sommeliers. He's an educator, teaching over 20,000 people with his Windows on the World wine course. He's a prolific author, selling over 4 million wine books. Kevin is the recipient of the 2011 James Beard Lifetime Achievement Award. He is a true wine icon, and he's still going at it after 45 years. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Well, Sam, thank you. I got to say one thing. Everybody thinks of me as the wine guy or something. Number one thing in my life is music. Art and theater. Okay. Number two is sports. I'm a basketball coach. I've been a basketball coach for 30 years. Your kids? My kids, yes, correct. Okay. And wine comes in number three, which pays for one and two. That's how it works for me. Okay. I love wine. It's a passion, no doubt about it. I love everything about it, but I got other things in my life. So your wine has been, cons- your life has been consumed by wine, but there's been a lot of other things. Four- nice to hear family stuff, music, all Four that. children. All right, we'll get into all of that you know, as we sort of unravel everything. 
There's a lot to talk about. I want to ask you about what got you into wine. I want to ask you how you wound up at Windows on the World. Let's talk about your tenure there. Um, let's talk about the Windows on the World wine course. And let's talk about wine today. But first, I can't think of anyone better, and I wouldn't ask this to everyone, but I want to ask you, how do you define wine? That, that was a question that was asked of me, of the man who created Windows on the World. His name was Joe Baum. He created the Four Seasons Restaurant in 1959. He uh, created everything at the World Trade Center, not just Windows on the World, in the early 70s. Uh, and uh, then came back to do Rainbow Room, and then we actually owned Rainbow Room and Windows on the World at the same time. And he came back in the mid-'90s. This was after the bombing. People forget the bombing. The bombing was in '93. And uh, the World Trade Center opened, but we didn't. We were closed for three years. So we reopened in 96, two parts to Windows in the World. But when I was interviewing with Joe Baum... So the bombing on the lower level yes. created a closing? Yes. Wow. I didn't, well, realize. think of it this way. And if you remember the old World Trade Centers, there was, there was actually only one elevator that went straight up, and it was ours. So that was the chimney, if you want to look at it that way. Right. Uh, we actually did lose uh, some unemployed. Six people died that day, wow. and uh, we lost an employee. But he said to me, Joe, this, I remember I'm just turned 25 years old, and he says, uh, what do you like about wine? And I thought for a second. I said, I like to drink it. <laughs> he said, okay, you're hired. That Very simple. It. That was it. Good time not to get too esoteric exactly. or nerdy, right? Well, the interesting thing, which I didn't know, and I wasn't applying for the job. I was a salesman. I was a salesman trying to sell wine to these people. Uh, but they had in the white paper, the white paper means what are you looking for in a general manager or a chef? And for a wine person, they wanted a young American. Boom. I walk in trying to sell wine. I'm just turned 25. And they actually gave me everything. I took over the whole wine program from before the restaurant even opened. When you look back at that, don't. It sounds like a little crazy, like they entrusted me with all this. I'm a 25-year-old guy, you know, just a wine sales guy. Well, let's talk, let's talk about Malcolm Gladwell, okay, and the outliers, where he states, and everybody knows this, it's 10,000 hours. hours. Well, believe it or not, I put the 10,000 hours in before I walked into that office. At, at how? Like the Beatles played in Germany forever? Yeah. How do you, reading, working, sales? I was 19 years old. Um, I was a lost student. Uh, no, excuse me, I was a lost child at Woodstock, 1969. I was just at the Woodstock uh, site this weekend doing a charity event. So it's Bethel old, Woods? Bethel Woods. I was back there uh, with the Gary family and the Gary Foundation doing a whole charity for them. But that's where I was in 69. So you attended Woodstock? Oh, yeah. Okay. I changed my whole life because I told you I'm into music. Uh, and my, you know, my kids are thinking, well, I don't think it was just music, Dad. Yeah, it was just music. It wasn't there for anything else. Uh, but anyhow, uh, I said, I said, well, let's, I can be blunt with you, can't I? Yes. Thank you. So, you know, I went to Catholic schools all my life. So from the time I'm in kindergarten to the time I'm a senior in high school, everybody's wearing a jacket and a tie. <laughs> I went to Woodstock. They weren't wearing any clothes. Period. I said, I'm joining this tribe. Okay. And I moved right away to that area and as where I still live, which is New Paul's, New York. And that's where my life changed. A year later, I'm working so in a you restaurant. you were one of those people that got pulled to that area and stayed and lived that? Woodstock, New York, meant music to me. It meant art to me. I mean, that's where Bob Dylan, we talk about right, Dylan. We talk about uh, the band. You talk about... Um, Todd you know, Rundgren was up there. Well, even, uh, even actually, there was a guy named Albert Grossman, who was the, uh, the manager of Janis Joplin, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I can go on and on and on. And his studio was right there. 
So there was a, yeah, there was a draw. The festival did it, but I knew I was going to go towards the, in that direction. So that's the music part. How do we get to wine? So, okay, I have no money. This is a recurring theme in my life. Okay. Uh, my parents, I love them dearly. My mother was actually in my wine school for the first time in 40 years. Wow. On Monday. Uh, and uh, she doesn't drink wine. No, 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 but they didn't drink in my family. There was no alcohol in my family. So I, I sort of, you know, didn't think about it. But I got a job in a restaurant. And I, I'm, I paid my way through college. Every penny. Every student loan. I did. All the 10,000 hours I did on my own money. I got a job in a restaurant. And uh, the restaurant in the middle of nowhere became famous. How did it become famous? There was a guy named... Tell everyone the restaurant. It was up in Westchester? No, it was actually further up. Further it was in up? Ulster County, in, outside of New Paltz. And, and between New Paltz and Woodstock, New York, it was called the Dupuy Canal House right. Tavern. And we'd only been open six months. And I was like, what, 19 years old? Uh, and uh, in walks Craig Claiborne, who was the restaurant critic for the New York Times, with an entourage of eight, which included Jacques Pepin, uh, and uh, another chef who's no longer with us, Pierre Fronet. Anyhow, bottom line, they give this restaurant a four-star rating. Wow. It's the highest rating you can get for the New York Times, and it was the first restaurant outside of New York to get that rating. All of a sudden, we went from 20 people to 120 people, and we'd never had a bartender with 10, 20 people. All of a sudden, who can do the bar? Kevin went to do the bar. So I became the bartender. So I was doing the liquor, I was doing the wine, I was doing you know distilled spirits uh, and beer, all that kind of stuff. But I was a history major in college. Wine just hit me. And then one time, this guy is still one of my closest friends. He was, he's 10, 15 years older than I am, but he gave me a great bottle of wine. He had a wine cellar. And so I'm 19 years old, and he hands me a bottle of wine, probably in 1945 or something to that effect. Burgundy. 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 It was Pinot Noir that did it for me. And I said, wow, wow. The aha moment? This is something unbelievable. Do you remember the wine? I was a Musigny. Musigny, okay. Comte de Vaugouet, 1945. <laughs> So uh, for the people that are listening, it's pretty expensive stuff now. But back then, it wasn't. It was expensive, but nothing like today. So that was it. Hooked. I'm in. Just tell me what to do. How do I do it? And interestingly enough, the Hudson Valley of New York is the birthplace of American viticulture. People don't even think about that. They think of California. Well, California didn't even exist. So the, the you know... Uh, everybody came over from Europe. They started planting grapes, started making wine. The oldest winery is called Brotherhood This was before winery. the Finger Lakes, too? Well, Finger Lakes were there. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to use, use them as an example. But they were primarily, you know, uh, sweet wines, Catawba, right. Concord, Taylor Wine Company. Commodity wines. Commodity wines, right. Uh, and that's the grape variety that could grow, Concord or Catawba. You put it into jelly, probably should have stayed there. That's, that's about as far as I go when it comes to wine. Um, uh, so I went, I was in the Hudson Valley. So the oldest winery is there, Brotherhood. The oldest vineyard in the United States, continually operated vineyard, is in Marlboro, New York, called Ben Marl. I started exploring. Then when that was done, which was about it, by the way, you know, two or three right. different places, off to the Finger Lakes. Off to the Finger Lakes I go, and I go just up there. And, and actually, today, I had a bottle of 1967 Muscat Otenel by Dr. Constantine Frank. Frank. And I was 20 years old, and I knocked on his door, and he opens the door, and he says, yeah, what can I do for you? And my hair was way down, okay? And plus the beard. I sort of looked like Jesus. And so he said, what do you want? And I said, I, I, I really want to learn about wine. What? You're just knocking on my door? Okay, go in the garage. We're grafting today. So in this cold garage in the middle of the winter, I started learning how to graft, cutting the vines, putting the, uh, you know, the uh, wax on them, putting them into the... This is how it all started. Uh, and that 67 uh, that I had today uh, at the Wine Writers Guild uh, was unbelievable. I was, we were bottling the wines, 
and they were labeling this all done by hand. There's no machines. Uh, and so uh, he said, here, take this bottle. And that's the wine I opened today. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah, and the wine was in excellent shape. Excellent Is shape. Constantine Frank still alive? No, he passed away probably 20 years ago. Oh, so it's been a while. But his family still runs it, and they make some of right. the best wine in the United States, in the world, when it comes to Riesling. That is true. He does have a following. Right. So after that, uh, by the way, I started teaching a course at 20 on, on wine. The reason the local community college came by and said, hey, you guys got a four-star rating. You must know something about wine and cheese. Why don't we have a little continuing education course? Okay. We didn't, I didn't know anything about wine, and the chef, who, John Novi, didn't know anything about cheese. So we started teaching a wine and cheese course. You've got to be one step ahead of your students. And then, uh, then, uh, then I said, this is it. I've got to get to California. I hitchhiked to California. Hitchhiked well, to California. Why California? Because you viewed the wine world as being At not that, global but in California, do well, you? Well, Mondavi started in 66. Right. Started the, 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 they're 50 years old. They're 50 years old this year. And Mondavi, Robert Mondavi was the man, okay? And, and not just a man of, uh, he was a man of arts and theater and music. This worked for me. Because he was also, and he played football at Stanford. I liked the guy. Uh, so, um, so going out there, and there, there was there was only twelve wineries to see. This is 1972. I had to wait until I was 21 years old, and that in 1972 I, I turned well, 71. I turned 21 because right. we could drink at 18 here in New York. Right. So anyhow, I could I could I could talk about the wines, but I couldn't drink them out there. So that's how it happened. So I spent months out there. Took a semester off. I went out to all these wineries, and then. Um, Came back, finished college. Actually, I ended up teaching a two-credit wine course at the State University at New Pulse. You don't want to even know. We don't have time to talk about how I got that passed. Well, New Pulse is known as a party school. It's not anymore. It's no. one of the hardest schools oh, to get into. If I, if I had to get into it now, Damn. no, I, I wouldn't be able to get into it. It's like the number one in the State University really? for applicants. It always had that reputation, though. Well, there was the tripping fields, but we won't go into okay. that. And that's actually all the people that played at Woodstock ended up playing at New Pulse. But, um, so go back to yeah. California for a second. Sure. Were you doing part-time jobs? Were you just sort of tooling around? I mean, you were just talking to people, tasting stuff, absorbing everything? I guess from my education, uh, and I, I'm very lucky to have a good education. My parents, it's one thing that did for me is making sure that I had great schooling. Uh, and I learned to write. I'm a writer. And so I actually wrote ahead. I wrote to Robert Mondavi. I wrote to his brother, Peter Mondavi. I wrote to Inglenook. I wrote to, uh, you know, Christian Brothers. Uh, a, a Beaulieu winery. Uh, I'm trying to think of the people that Sterling was out there at that time. Again, like I said, there really wasn't much going on. It was about a dozen wineries that you you. And so I worked in. I worked for free, and I got all the information I needed, and hitchhiked back. Crazy. Yep. Then finished. Then I finished college because my parents. Speaking of my mother, that was there. She said, "No, I'll, you're 19, 20 years old. You're not going in the wine business. You got to finish college." So you finish school. You I get out of school and off to Europe to do what? Same thing I did in California. Just travel around and pursue, you know, your love of wine, the history of it. I was a hippie. Where did you designate a place right away? Was it Burgundy or Bordeaux? It was France. Uh, And I had a girlfriend in Grenoble. So, boom, she was there. So I stayed with her. And Grenoble is in sort of like central eastern part of France. And so I could easily get to Burgundy. I could get to uh, Alsace. I could get to the Rhone Valley. I could get to Italy real quick. And then if I wanted to cross over to the west side of, of France, I could hit Bordeaux in the Loire Valley, go down to Spain. It was really easy to do. So what did that trip do to you? It opened up your horizons as far as 
you know, wine is not just a bunch of wineries in California and New York. It's this vast, you know, world of production in different areas. What did you take away from that? Well, as a history major, everything. Now we're talking about Napoleon. Now we're talking about thousands of years ago. We're talking about chateaus, you know, from the 12th century that I'm staying at because I had written ahead and I had this really great letter that looked like I was really important. And everything was true in the letter, but it lo- and they, they, didn't, they weren't ready for me. And you were a good writer, so you yes, could get their attention. I did. All that. I was regional director for something called Les Amis du Vin. Which did means you make that up? No. There was an organization okay. called the, the Les Amis du Vin means Friends of Wine. So the French loved it. They thought I was like some guru. What, what that meant, by the way, uh, is that I got a good lunch. Okay, so it was a three-hour lunch because I was living in youth hostels. <laughs> was there any uh, push-off? To the fact that you were an American or they embraced you? No. They, they, as a matter of fact, I hadn't seen many, especially young Americans there. Right. And that was a, t- a tough time for them, by the way. There was a fiscal crisis going on in France. People talk about these great wines like Chateau Margaux, which now sells at $2,000 a bottle. When I was there, the weeds were higher than the vines. Wow. Uh, they, they were, and, and they, needed, they needed press and they needed somebody to buy their wines. So they were open to no, talking to people. I had so how long time. were you there? I was there for a year. Okay. And, but I did everything, not just France. I did Italy. I, right. did, I did Spain. I did Portugal. I did Switzerland. Uh, Germany. Uh, those were the big Very ones underrated. to go to. So after a year, what happens? I did all of this. I'm homesick. I need to move on. I mean, why do you pull out of there? I got in a fight on a train. But that's, <laughs> called, that's called the train from the, the night train from Amsterdam to thrown out of Paris. the continent? I mean... Uh, it's a long, another long story. I'm, okay. I'm a pacifist, by the way, so it's like hard for me to even say something like that. But I had to defend myself. <laughs> but I got arrested as well. Oh, so well, it's just time they, to leave? They didn't know. Oh, no, no, they, they, they found out. It was the other guy that was robbing me. So, that, again, I'll let that story go. It's going to be in my memoir book. So it was time to go, yeah. So um, I got back to Paris and um, they came home. I, I came home and culture shock. Tremendous culture shock. So you come home, you come home home? or No, yeah. well, up, upstate New York. Upstate. So, so I finished college, so now I'm off to Europe. I come back. That restaurant that I worked at kept my job, so I stayed. I got right back into the work thing. Uh, and then I just realized that my friends, um, and they're still my close friends today, thought I was nuts. Now, you've got to understand. Nuts this is, to do what? Wine uh, business. Wine. Wine was nothing. To continue to pursue pursue that route they had no i was like talking a different language and i didn't even bother you know that's why sports came it's in. not unfair i mean it no. wasn't pr- as proliferated then as it is now well you know now it's sommelier's a rock star then you know you're a little nutty so i get that but that that's a tribute to your passion and your persistence i never thought of this as a job i never thought of this as making money the word passion yeah it's it, it just yeah still i'm still as passionate as i was then but now that I have all this knowledge of all the years that I've done it and been around the world and have gone to all of these wineries. Uh, so I'm not jaded. So while you were, what is it, Dupuy? Dupuy Canal. Canal. While you were there, you're tasting a ton of wines. You're, you're sort of orienting your palate. You're differentiating. I mean, everything you read about and traveled for. Now you're, they had great wines where you could open up and... Well, now I'm ahead of myself. Okay. Now I'm too far ahead of myself because uh, this little this little restaurant couldn't handle what I wanted to do. All right. Not that they wouldn't do it, but you know, it's a small restaurant. I mean, I still have the wine list, and the wine list was a slate, and it was painted, not chalk, painted on. 
Chateau Latour, $67, $14 a bottle. <laughs> so I have them in my wine cellar. Always remember, as my mother said, always remember where you came from. So you what know. was it, about 20, 30 wines? Uh, yeah, it was about that, and uh, primarily French, uh, because American wines uh, were not of no consequence. There was a smattering of German wines. And by the way, that's the way it, that's the way it started at Windows in the World. Most places, more like that. Yeah. I have the original wine list so of the Four you, Seasons. Do you leave there and go to Windows? Is that or you yeah. did the no? You did a little sales. <laughs> you know, I got this. I saw this. There's something in my business called the Beverage Media. Okay, and it tells you you know all the where the wines are, who's got them, and you could buy them. I used it at the restaurant. Then there was an ad I saw. It said 450 uh, accounts uh, in Rockland, Westchester, and Manhattan. Prime, prime accounts. So I applied for the job. Didn't think I was smart enough to get it. Realized then I realized later on that these people knew nothing about wine. I go to these 450 accounts, and the building is not even there, okay? The whole block is not even there. And this went on and on. As I went back to the sales manager, I said, hey, Herb, where did you get these 450 accounts? He said, it was easy, Kevin. We have 45 salesmen, and they each gave up 10 of their accounts. Which 10 would you give up, Sam? That's it. Right? So finally. The Glen Gary file. Yeah. I mean, not even. And it was also a holiday season. Nobody wanted to see me. They threw me out of stores. So it's basically a shit list. <laughs> Worse. Worse, none of them were active. Do you get discouraged or you claw your way out of it? Um, you know, it's funny. I'm a very optimistic person, uh, and I, I still looked at it as a challenge. And I was in New York City. I'm in the Big Apple, and, you know, the Frank Sinatra song, hey, I can do it. But somebody gave me, a, somebody gave me something, a little piece of paper, and they said, go down uh, to the World Trade Center. They're opening some restaurants down there. Okay. So that's what happened. I went down to the 18th floor of One World Trade Center. Windows in the World has not been opened yet, and that's where they were doing all the bookings and stuff like that. And I went in, and I, there was a lady named Barbara Kafka. Now, people don't know Barbara Kafka, but she's the microwave queen. She was buying, she was James Beard's editor, to give you an idea. And she was buying the silverware and all this. And because she spoke French, they gave her the wine thing. And I said, I'd like to see Barbara Kafka. Now she can't see you. Okay. I'll come back tomorrow. I went back the next day. My mother taught me one thing. It's okay to be politely brazen. Sure. Chutzpah is what they call it in New York City. So I go back again next day. Can't say. Three weeks of this. Three weeks of coming in every day. And sometimes I just sat there and waited for a couple of hours, you know. I was bringing tea and coffee to everybody because every, everyone thought I worked yeah, there anyhow. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. Did. Well, nobody knew what was going on. They didn't know right. if I was working there or not. And at Barbara Kafka finally comes out and says, what do you want? And I said, I'm here to help you with your wine list. I won't say exactly what she said on that, air. It sounded a little pretentious to me, like you're going to help me. Uh, yeah, and she took it that way. Okay. All right? But get in my office. Two hours within that, I was pretty much hired. You talked your way. Uh, well, no, I had already done the 10,000 hours. Right. Well, I mean, no, not I, saying you didn't yeah. know your stuff, but you convinced her. She asked you know. me questions. You know, I answered them. So she... Barbara Kafka hires you? Well, no, Barbara Kafka then introduces me to Joe to Baum. And Joe Baum, like I said, that, that whole thing, what do, you, what do you think about wine? Eh, I like to drink it. Boom, you're in. And uh, there was only two sommeliers. I was, actually, there was only one sommelier. You're talking about all these sommeliers and restaurants today. There was no master of wine program. There was no master sommelier in the United States. I was self-taught and because I wanted to be. So even if you wanted, there weren't no, certifications available. No, absolutely nothing. As I said, there was one, Renzi uh, uh, is still, uh, still a sommelier in New York, uh, so 50 years. Barbetta? Yeah, Barbetta. Yeah. He's there. He's been there forever. And uh, he's a great guy. And uh, um, I don't even think he went out for his master sommelier, but he doesn't have to. He's you know just like me. You don't need a master sommelier. He learned it on the streets. So when you got the job, did you 
obviously, like you said, you did the 10,000 hours. You were confident that you had the knowledge. Did did you feel like, am I going to be able to do this? No. We were thrown in. Windows on the World, before it even opened, New York Magazine put it on the front cover. Gail Green, the famous writer, wrote the story. And on the front cover, it said the most spectacular restaurant in the world. That's the front cover of New York Magazine. Did Joe Baum have a reputation before he opened that? Well, he had the Four Seasons. Oh, he was the Four Seasons. Four Seasons, La Fonda del Sol, a right, former right, right. the 12th season. So Caesars. Joe was a legendary restaurant guy Absolutely. by that time, yep. and he was the guy to do this big blown-out project. Right. So, you know, we we were so... And we were opening in a bicentennial year, uh, and you couldn't get into Windows in the World. Even I couldn't get my friends in or family in. I mean, we were... And this is an acre in size. The day it opened, it hit the, the ground running? The day it opened until maybe 15 years later. So people can visualize it was in the World Trade Center. Which tower was it in? One World. It was in Tower, and the restaurant was a restaurant, but it was multiple floors. There was catering. There was a thing called Cellar in the Sky, which yes. was a more intimate wine room. So it was, it was a whole facility, fair to say? One acre in size, and we started off on the 107th floor and eventually went down to the 106th floor. Because so, of popularity and the space. need to grow space? It was all banquet rooms on the 106th floor. But think about this guy. I'm writing a screenplay on this guy, Joe Baum. Uh, matter of fact, I was with my writer today. Listen, he's a colorful guy. I'm going to do an off-Broadway uh, musical on this guy, bring my music in and stuff like that. Why? Because think about it. This is the early 70s. He's got a place called the Ordervery. What is an hors d'oeuvre? It seats 240 people and had everything except... French dim sum. Everything, okay? Small bites, which is what everybody's doing today, 40 years later. He, had, he put in the cellar in the sky, a small, intimate place that holds 32 seats with wine and food combinations. It was just one sitting with classical music in the background. And the wine list, he said to me, I want you to create the biggest and the best wine list New York has ever seen, and don't worry about how much it costs. Kid in a candy store, I'm gone. I'm wow. off. I'm back. I'm over in France again because I know that they're hurting for money. Now I got the money. So now I'm going back to the chateaus so that took good care of me. So all the time spent there I got helped to you develop relationships, yep. get things going and all of that. Yep. I walked in. I said, I'll, I'll have 10 cases of the 1900, 10 cases of the 29. So what was the focus? You knew you were going to uh, buy a lot of French wine. You a little German. I mean, you're very well known for being one of the great cheerleaders and proponents of American wine. So I'm assuming... Was it early on, or it took a few years before you started? For the customer, it was primarily French. Did I have Did I have the wineries that I visited? Again, let's go back. All right, so now I visited yeah, and England, everything that I just mentioned. Right. Uh, my uh, my economists, I could, I could go on through all these different uh, great producers, and they really were making very very good wines, but there wasn't enough of them. I mean, I was just talking to the people from seventy four Heights. You got? I I don't know. Did you read my book? I didn't. Okay, I will. I'm telling you, in the sidebar, one of the best... It's, I don't har- hardly ever do this because I don't rate wines. I don't use a numerical scale. I don't put a number to something. Now, I don't use British poetry to describe a wine. I either like it or I don't. Right. But uh, the, the Heights Martha's Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard 1974, was probably one of those spectacular wines I had 20 years after the vintage. It looked like it was brand new. I've had it, too, against other wines. and it was spect- I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. Yeah. And it makes me happy because I love California wines. So answer the California wine question. It's, it's on your radar, but it's not necessarily on the customers. Or How do you, how do you start pushing that? I had help. It's called, it's called Judgment in Paris. 1976? Right. Bottle shock. Bottle, yeah, 1976. They're putting French wines. 
uh, this is 40 years ago now. 40, this is the anniversary of, of Bottle Shock or Judgment in Paris where they put the French wines against the California wines and the, all French tasters, and they didn't know the California wines were in there. It was put together by a guy named Stephen Spurrier, you know, who's a Brit in Paris, though. Uh, and uh, the wine, uh, we've seen it. Uh, I'm sure your, your listeners know Mike, it. Mike Gergit, right? Well, he was at Chateau Montalina. The, Montalina right. And though. it was a Chardonnay. Correct. And it was only their second vintage. Come on. And they're up against all the great white burgundies like Pellini Montrachet, Chassagne Montrachet. Boom, it wins. How did it win? Who knows? But I, and there was no rigging. <laughs> I can use that term. It wasn't rigged. And, and the red wines did well, too, right? Stag's Leap won. Stag's Leap wine cellar Warren beat out. Warren Winarski, right? Warren Winarski. Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, Chateau Latour. All Crazy. These, yeah. So does that, does that resonate here quickly, or it takes a little time for, you know, the whole thing to settle in. I mean, is, is, that's the starting point, right? New York has always been an import market, okay, versus California where anything goes. So, yeah, did it take some time? I had, to, I had to go out and get some really, really good wines, and I had to convince people. Eventually, by the way, so I started in 76 by 1980. In 1976, our sales were primarily primarily 90% French. How's that? By 1980, they were 75% American wines. Because of that. And that plus I was bringing you, the wines in. Right. It's hand-sold. And basically, I, you know, I asked Joe, I said, Joe, how many sommeliers can I have? He said, none. You're it. What do you think? That's why I hired you. Why but, did you ask that question? Well, you needed it, uh, more people on the floor? Exactly. I mean, just a pragmatic it's request? A 240 seats in the restaurant, 240 <laughs> seats in the hors d'oeuvre. You know, I mean, how am I going to cover this whole thing? So I started teaching the captains. Can you confirm this? The, you described the restaurant as being over an acre of restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I think Windows on the World was one of the few hospitality-driven places. Danny Meyer is very famous for that. Mm-hmm. Can you confirm that, you know, that there was an obsession there about, you know, hospitality, serving the customer, cleanliness selection? I mean, did was that pulled off every night? Every night. And there was a lineup. You lined up. And if, you, if you're something, your shoes weren't polished. If your tie was crooked. And if not everybody was, was doing frayed. that. So it... When you walked in there, you got the army. And that's not what everyone gave you necessarily. Army. Joe said the following. Okay, this is part of the screenplay. The restaurant <laughs> the restaurant is theater. And that's what it is. And you know what? Who we hired? He hired people to do the uniforms at Windows in the World and the Rainbow Room from the theater. People that did costumes, you know, for all the plays. That's why that's why I'm I'm a little excited, as you can see. My passion goes beyond just uh, you know the the wine part. Well, listen, People, it's a he's a special guy. It's a special place. There's an incredible history to it. You were there from the beginning. I mean, you're the guy to carry that torch. I mean, it really is. It's one of those. I, I know enough about what you're talking about. My listeners may not, but it's one of those stories that you know when it plays out, it's like, oh my god. You know, this place, this guy, these people were incredible. And, you know, I definitely think you're, you know, onto something with that. Well, I want to say that people don't know this. As a matter of fact, i got to tell millennials what Windows in the World was because they have no idea. But in 2001, in September of 2001, Windows in the World was the number one dollar volume restaurant in the world at $38 million. Wine sales were the highest in the world. I mean, just these were things besides it being spectacular and a view and great food. Michael LaMonaco. By the way, the chef who was the chef at the 21 Club came back after the bombing. And Porterhouse currently. He's at Porterhouse, the owner and the Terrific chef of Porterhouse. Guy. Yeah, but, but he re- – the best years for me at Windows in the World were the first five and the last five. How many were in between? Well, we were, tw- we were, 25, we were 25 years okay. old. 
So 15 years. Right. Um, it wasn't a bad 15 years. I'm just saying the excitement of the first five. And then I didn't even know if Windows in the World was going to come back after the bombing. I stayed there. I was the only one that stayed there. I was the only one that was there for 25 years uh, from start to finish. You lost a lot of colleagues, right? Yeah, we I did. I mean, it was over 70, 70 people you were. 72. So I don't want to you know, dwell on the sad part of it. Can I say something about that? Sure. That, that and, and anybody listening, you've, you've had your tragedies and, and, and stress and, and whatever, trauma. So, you know, it's like after September 11th, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was teach my wine course. Why would I want to teach my wine course? Why would want to even listen to me talk about wine after September 11th? But you know what? Friends, family, and most important, my, important was my therapist who said to me, if you don't continue to do what you do best and what you have a passion for, literally, he said, these were, you're going to die too. So we started the wine classes up six weeks after. It's a big sports thing, too. You know, coach loses back. his dad, and they say your dad would want you on the field the next day. And yep. that was right. But let's go back because we missed a part. So yep. you're at Windows of the World, you know, one of the most spectacular restaurants, wine programs, a historic time. You have your hand in introducing American wines. The place is, you know, really successful. Um, when does the wine program start? Right away. 1976. My wine school. And you have the support of anything I wanted. Okay. Uh, Talk about training, and so like I had to train all the captains to be sommeliers. If you want to look at it that way. By the way, we didn't use the word sommelier. We used the term cellar master because we didn't want to be French. So I was called the cellar master, and then it became the wine director. Smart. But the the classes started with the staff, and then we were a club at lunch. We had twenty five hundred club members, and I started teaching a class in nineteen seventy six in the fall. I'm ending the classes this semester. This is my 40th anniversary. This is your 40th year. They're going through November. Correct. They're sold out. Yeah. So as Oversold. We're, as we're talking to people, there's no opportunity. Nope. Not now, but I'll tell you, I'm, not, I'm, I'm ending the Windows in the World Wine School because it's an eight-week class. And you know what? It's 40 years since it started. It's 45 years since I started studying wines, and it's 15 years since September 11th. So I'm going to let it go. I'm letting it go. That's really what I'm doing. I'm still going to teach classes. Um, from the wine course came a companion book. Yes. That I had mentioned earlier. That and a few other books you wrote have sold over 4 million copies. So even though that the class is ending, people can go out and buy the book, which is updated you know, fairly regularly. Every year. And you know, they could sit at home and, you know, with a, with a glass of wine. With a glass of wine. Yeah. No, the, the, I'm very, very lucky. And I'll tell you, I grew up in a town called Pleasantville. Pleasantville, New York. That sounds like a nice yeah. – by the way, it was just voted uh, the number – this is not a joke, by the way. It was. This is the guy – the emperor. He wrote the book Emperor of Scent. He was the scent uh, whatever writer or, or editor for the Wall Street Journal. And he said that Pleasantville was – he did the top ten smelling places – on earth, okay? And number two was Pleasantville. I grew up in the right place. But also there was a thing called Reader's Digest there, which was the oh, condensed that's right. version. That's right. My book is the Reader's Digest of wine. It's which the- is a good thing because you get right to it. Right. Kevin, I, we want to take a quick break, um, and then I want to come back, talk to you a little more about the book. I want to talk to you about current trends. I want to expose you to our weekly wine list. And then I want to taste some wine. So we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Kevin Israeli. Um, We'll be back after this message.
Today's program is brought to you by Egg Restaurant. For over 10 years, Egg has focused on making the best breakfasts in New York with a menu that combines southern inflected classics like biscuit, grits, and country ham with dishes like duck hash, chorizo, and eggs, pancakes dripping with Vermont maple syrup, and more vegetables than you ever dreamed of eating before noon. But what gets them up every morning at Egg is something different. It's the chance to improve everything they encounter, the lives of the people who work with them, the lives of their customers, the health of their local economy, and the soil their food is grown in. Their interest in food goes way beyond what they put on your plate. Food touches on everything they care about, flavor, health, social justice, art and literature, agriculture, and ecology. It's one of the reasons Egg Restaurant is so happy to support Heritage Radio, who digs into everything that matters every week. For more information, visit eggrestaurant.com. We're back with our guest, Kevin Zraeli. Um, I want to finish up with Kevin on the Windows in the World Wine School and the book. Um, there's the Windows on the World Complete Wine Course. That's the main book, right? Yes. There's a Kevin Zraeli's American Wine Guide, you know, continuing your uh, cheerleading of American wines. There's the Ultimate Wine Companion. There's a Windows on the World tasting notebook. So you got a bunch of books out there, right? Uh, yeah, I got another one to come on just simply called Red Wine. I'm writing it, and we talked about that before, but the World Wine Guys is two guys uh, that I'm working on this book with out next year. Who are those guys? Um, they actually um, they are, um, uh, have other books out. They did a whole book on California wine. They did a whole book on... Uh, on, on uh, Southern Hemisphere. Quickly, how did the project come together? Uh, it's my same publisher. Okay. Matter of so, fact, I was with my editor today. Okay. It works. It works. Okay. Um, so you're going to retire the Windows on the World wine course, as you said before, but you will continue, I, I don't want to be repetitive, to write the book and update it, plus you have new projects and all of that. Yeah, I'm going to do one-offs. Uh, I already have 12 classes scheduled, but they're individual classes, plus... Um, I work with a store called Sherry Lehman, which is on 59th and Park Avenue. A very storied wine dealer in New York for many years. It was the Rat Pack. You know, so Sam Aaron, who helped create that whole thing, you know, he was friends with Joe Baum. So that's how that right. connection happened. And then you have Burgess Meredith, throw him in the, in the mix. Uh, a guy named Alexis Lachine, uh, you know, who was the famous, he was one of my mentors. He, he was worked with the OSI with Julia Child. Russian, French, American passport, and he owned Chateau Priori Lachine. Uh, James Beard was part of that whole thing. I mean, so I was talking about before, one day I'm a salesman selling nothing, zero, zilch. The next day, I'm sitting with Jacques Pepin, who was one of the consultants for Windows in the World, James Beard, Barbara Kafka. Uh, I can go through the list of the people that were sitting at that table and say, okay, what do we do from here? Okay, I'm in. Right. I'm in. That's crazy. Tell me... <laughs> Excuse me. I, I think you're a good person to talk about how things have changed in the wine world. I mean, your history is, you know, deeper and longer than most people. But when you look at the wine world today, I mean, what are the obvious things to you? I, I mean, and I'm not looking for negatives necessarily. You know, what are the changes that, that really you, you look at? I have no negatives. Okay. None. Uh, I had lunch today with a friend of mine. I throw his name out because a lot of people in the wine business know him. His name is Robin Kelly O'Connor. And five years ago, when I was redoing my book, I, I decided that I'm going to go around the world in one year. And we hit 25 countries. I, it took a little you bit longer. You did long. it with him? Yeah. 
He was my designated driver. That was a mistake. <laughs> but, but anyhow, he uh, he uh, we had 25 countries. Uh, I don't know, 400 regions, 800 appellations. Tasted 7,000 wines. I came back from that, uh, and I here's 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 what I came back with. This is the golden age for wine, absolutely in the world, in the world. You didn't have when I even though Joe said to me, Joe Baum said, I want wines from all over the world. Do you know how hard it was for me to get a Yugoslavian wine or a South African wine or a Chilean wine in the United South States? South American, forget it. Whatever, right. I couldn't. I you know anyhow, I did it. I did find them somehow. I got them, but they did not exist. Chile didn't exist for any. Um, um, Argentina, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, you had the old world. In California, was still coming up. Um, so you know, it's like. That's that's a big change. And as a matter of fact, the biggest change is that the United States, in the United States of America, if you asked me this 40 years ago, I would have said, no, not going to happen, Sam. A winery in every state. At least two. At least two. That's why I wrote the book. I wanted to be the we're, first book to have We're all- talking Arizona and Ohio, which is, you know, hard to believe. North Dakota. Right. You know, that's crazy. And they were the last to join the join. So the everybody. golden age mm-hmm. alludes to the fact that. There's more wine than ever mm-hmm. all over the world. It's global. The variety, the quality, in, in most cases, is very good. You know, the commitment to it and everything is great. So there's wine everywhere. Well, in the back of my book, and as a matter of fact, I was corrected by my editor the other day. I said there's 400 wines, 400 wines, uh, you know, that are under $30. Well, guess what? He said, no, no, Kevin, you have 600 wines in the back. They're under 30 bucks, and most of them are under $20. So now millennials come in. So I wanted to bring this up. You already know this, but I don't know if everybody is aware of this, but the U.S. is the number one wine consumer in the world. And they took that position about when? Uh, two or three years ago. So it's a fairly recent. Yeah. And they it's not per capita. displaced France or Italy? Yeah, it was Italy. Fr- first France, then Italy. Okay. Uh, and it's not per capita. This is the funny thing I try to bring up in lectures. Okay, where's, where's the number one per capita wine consumption in the world? Guess what? Vatican City is the number one place. Okay. Bring this to, bring this into an election year. Where's the number one place in the United States of America? Washington D.C. So you know, there's a lot of fun stuff you can do with it. But these countries, uh, I mean, the political problems were. Just think about South Africa. Think about Argentina. Think about Chile. Think about Hungary. That was under communist Crazy rule time. Uh, in, until 1979. Right. Now the Tokais out of Hungary are unbelievable. Bottom line is the millennials now are 75 million strong. Uh, and they big, big are part of the market, almost the biggest. If you want to take a look at it, there are more millennials than there are baby boomers right so, now. So it's a good segue into my question. So when you talk about millennials becoming, you know, a key consumer, the millennial generation are very in tune to social media. What's your view? I mean, do you use it? Is it important to you? Do you see what it's done to wine? I, I mean, what's your view on it? Yeah, I, I look at. Social media can, I mean, you know, you worked with uh, Gary Vanderchuk. You know all about that. And he was on 60 Minutes on, on Sunday night. He's a guru night. in wine and in social media. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was the first to do it. And you were there. You saw it all. Um, and um, today, for me, it's not as important. My publisher uses it for me. Uh, if I were a young, I have four children. So I have, I have uh, uh, three millennials right now. Let's put it that way. So my oldest son is 25. If I was his age right now, I would be using that whole thing. I mean, a millennial can but knock he, out. But he doesn't bug you and say, Dad, you got to text. I mean, you got to oh, tweet oh, your oh, appearance. And no. we got to, you know, do I an Instagram that. page. I did that for here, just so you know. Okay. I mean, I did that, the tweeting and the Instagram. I asked you to. Snapshot <laughs> or whatever it's called. I got 24 so the, hours. the pressures from the kids, the current circumstance, you take it the way you want. 
you know, you handle your classes, your writing, your traveling, how you view it, your personal image and reputation. Social media is there. You use it. It's not – you would have viewed it differently if you were younger today. Yeah, and, and, but I want to. I, I want to. I like. I do read them. All right. I like. I see what people are saying about my book or what. Right. Here, here's the problem. The problem is, I never had to use it. It's sometimes used for business purposes, even though they say it's not supposed. Right. My wine school for forty years has sold out. I have. I had to move my wine class this semester uh, back to the Marriott Marquis because I had double the amount of people. You don't need social media. What about uh, last question? And then I want to do our uh, wine list. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. What about Psalms today? You you talked about the fact that, you know, you had this huge restaurant. You wanted to add Psalms. Joe Baum wouldn't let you. They really didn't exist. You could maybe recall one guy then. You know, now it's chefs used to be rock stars. Now Psalms are rock stars. I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, are they cheerleaders in a good way? Or are they kind of losing their uh, mojo? What, what do you think? No, they're not losing their mojo. Uh, they're very, very important. I was at Oriel on 42nd Street for lunch last week, and, you know, these guys are, they are so smart. I mean, I'm talking about book smart. I'm talking about wine smart. I mean, you know, this is what I tell my kids. Go to college, get a liberal arts degree, then figure out what you want to do. You know, don't specialize in anything. Enjoy this, the humanities and all that other kind of stuff. And these, these sommeliers today are extremely intelligent about life, not just about wine. Every place, you know, every decent place has a sommelier and, you know... They, five. Oriel's got five. They do. Yeah. Unbelievable. Nomad. I went to Nomad. Uh, they also have something like eight sommeliers or whatever it is. I mean, they got yeah. a one guru, but then they have eight sommeliers. Yeah. It's, it's, it's big business. And it's an opportunity... You know, I guess you could, we could tell the listener it's an opportunity for them to sort of drop their knowledge on you and expose you to regions you never heard of, give you the background, you know, let them push their passion a little on you. I mean, you just it's a great opportunity, I guess. There's only one little thing, and it's a little thing, okay? Right. I have a tremendous amount of respect for some ways. When I did Windows in the World, and maybe this is all I could do, my wine list was 80% in the box, 20% outside the box. What does that mean? Well, standards. Like uh, I'll go to oh, a famous producer in right, Burgundy right. or Bordeaux. The twenty percent was even a little risky, but you wanted to do it. Well, yeah, I'm throwing in these wines. Now, the more esoteric you are, I think the not the crazier you are, the cooler you are. Well, that's a problem though for the consumer. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll walk into a restaurant and I'm going to say, "There's a lot of restaurants. I've been doing this for forty five years. I don't know. I don't know the wines. That, I don't know where they even found them." Uh, and so what they've done, and I hope that it calms down a little bit, they've gone 80% out of the box, 20% in the box. I would love for them to drop to 50-50. 50%, 50 great wines that everybody knows and 50% of their own stuff. They're all trying to, they're trying to outdo each other. I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. I think it would serve everyone. There's a whole natural wine movement. There's small producers. There's Raw wine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Okay. All right. We're going to move on to a thing called the wine list. I ask all my guests a bunch of questions, and I'm curious. Are they yes and no answers? I didn't know <laughs> their answer answers, and I didn't prompt you because okay. I wanted you to be spontaneous. It's, it's not brain surgery here. Okay. You'll be fine. All right. So what wine are you drinking now? What what are you grabbing? What you know is it seasonal? Are you loving something? Have you switched over? I'm a little traditional. I'm a Bordeaux drinker. Okay. Uh, and I just had the Bordeaux class this week, so I've been drinking a lot of Bordeaux. Okay. Uh, you know that's French Cabernet Sauvignon, 2013, one of the most fantastic years. Uh, you know, I mean, good they, vintage. They've had great vintages, 2012, 13, 14, 15, and now 16 is going to be really good. 
but 2013 sort of stands out. So a lot of uh, Cabernets are still young, but I'm enjoying them. Rhone wines. Rhone. Uh, like, uh, I sh- you know, you can still even get a good Chateauneuf de Pop or Saint-Joseph or Gigandas. Fornaz, right. all that. Great stuff. Yep. Very big, delicious, I like, meaty I, wines. Red. Red, red. And, and I like meaty wines. I'm with you on that. Favorite wine and food pairing? Well, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting question because there is none. Okay. There, okay. there is none, and, and there might be for me or you, but in general, I don't want people to think that what I say is is, is gospel. No, the question is what you like. Yeah. Everyone knows champagne or muscadet and oysters are great, but you can't deny that a delicious bloody steak and a mm-hmm. terrific Cali cab or a Bordeaux, a Rhone isn't a bad, you know. Right after Windows in the World, uh, the guy Alan Stillman, who started Fridays. And I knew him. And Smith and Walensky. Well, that's my point. He sold yeah. Fridays, and then he used to open up Smith and Walensky, and he's such a nice guy. And we knew each other. We used to double date, actually. And, <laughs> and uh, he calls me after September 11th, whatever I can do. This is a big theme in my life. I, I saved the Marriott call me whatever I can do. Sherry Lehman call me whatever I can do. That's how, and Smith and Walensky, I stayed there for five years. Yeah, I can have a good sirloin steak and a Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's, that's a good pairing. Tell me about... Your travels and experiences. Try to keep it to this area. Favorite wine restaurant or bar? Where's a place that you know you go to? They have the selection, the people. You're comfortable there. Does anything jump out? I think um, there's so many, and, and I don't. I, I'm saying right now, this when I say golden age for wine, the wine list in New York City. This is the wine capital. So of the give world. me a today or the last week or. Well, something. I said I was at Nomad. Okay, Nomad, list. a terrific I, I was place. At Oriel. That's the Eleven Madison people. Oriel. Yes, Eleven Charlie Madison. Charlie Palmer. Yeah, well, I think packed up and moved to Sonoma. No, no, he's got a place in he's Sonoma. Place in, but okay. I think he's. I think he's he, look, Charlie Palmer. <laughs> He used to work at the River Cafe when I knew That's him. That's right. Matter of fact, Bobby Flay. We're not talking about Bobby Flay. Took my wine class when he was twenty-one. He looked about ten. I should have proofed him. Uh, but back to that whole. I think that I think we're very very lucky that so many restaurants put all this time. They have all of these sommeliers. I'm saying your your chances. Look at Twenty One Club, by the way. You may say, "Oh, Twenty One Club is such an old place." It's got one of the great wine lists wine. in the United States of and America. Cellar and everything. Yeah. Yep. People don't look at that. Yeah. All right. Favorite all-time wine. It could be a birthday wine. It could be that wine, that Burgundy. Chateau Latour. Chateau Latour? Mm-hmm. I, I have had every Why? vintage. The aromatics, the... Um, consistency. And I've had every single vintage since okay. uh, uh, 1900 and actually went back into the 1800s as well. All right. Now... I can't afford it anymore, by the way. <laughs> so, it's crazy. It, no, it's nuts. It's Thank crazy. God I bought wines you know, like 25 years ago that I still have. That's what I'm, I'm not buying any new stuff. Do you have a cellar at home? I have a very large cellar. Okay, how many bottles are we talking about? Thousands. I, you know, matter of fact, it's funny you should say that because I, 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 I am in a new house right now, out of my old house where I had the cellar, and it's all. Did be- you design a new cellar? Did you have an opportunity? Yeah, to- I, you know what I did it out of? I did it out of limestone from Burgundy. Nice. And they brought it. It's like it looks, you know, like uh, cement. It's blocks, but it's limestone from Burgundy that I had shipped over. Nice. And it's I can't be, and it holds the temperature and it keeps it even cooler. Breakdown for me is it. A third French, a third California, and then a third Italian and I'm a, German. I'm a Francophile. Okay. All right. So here's a question that my listeners love. Tell me, recommend to me your best wine under 15 bucks. Give me a red. Give me a white. Well, again, I'm going to go back. I'm going to give you a few. I'm going to real go quickly. Rioja. Okay. okay. Like a, a, you can even get a... Rioja is a Spanish wine. It's a region of Spain. Great could, value. Yeah, Cote de Rhone, I'm still going to throw that in there. Cote de Rhone is part of the Rhone. It's the, I wouldn't say cheaper, but 
you know. The but you get a Cote Rhone Village. You can get them at fifteen bucks, right. and they're going to taste like a thirty dollar bottle of wine. So Cote Rhone from Chianti. the Rhone region, Chianti. Chianti. How about white? Um, white wine, Macon. Uh, from France, 100% Chardonnay. M-A-C-O-N, Macon. Or Macon, if you're from Georgia. Macon, Georgia, the Almond Brothers. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, you know, I, I still love Riesling. People don't like Riesling, but you can get some really good German I think Riesling German is one of the most overlooked wines. And also, I, you know, Pinot Grigio's out there, but try some of the other ones, like Pinot, Pinot right. Bianco. Right. Uh, and Alsace Riesling, which is dry. So those are all some, you know, great choices. So there, there is... There's a lot of good wines out there from different countries that you can get for, you know, 15 bucks and all. I got to say this. I don't know how the consumer does it. I mean, it was pretty easy for me to start. I don't know if sommeliers do it. I mean, it's, it, you, you know, you go to Sherry Lehman, they got 6,000 SKUs. How do you, and, and new stuff come in every day. There are and more you, importers than I've ever seen. It, it's funny because you have to have it because one guy walks in and he asks for the skew that they don't have. It's like ice you know, because somebody got a write up or whatever. Yeah, Star, right. Starbucks and ice cream. Kevin, we Same do a, we do a feature called the weekly wine sip, and I want you to stay here and taste with us. It's an excuse for us to taste wine on the air. So for this week's weekly wine sip, I want to celebrate your appearance. And we're going to taste a vintage California cab. Usually I taste something that's the 15 bucks that, you know, we like it, go out and buy it. But we're going to taste a 1997 Foreman Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa, California. The reason I picked it is Rick Foreman is a guy who's been at the game as long as you've been at the game and, you know, very reputable. He has a terrific history. The 97 Foreman is a blend of 75% Cab Sauv. The rest is a little mix of Cab Franc and Merlot. The wine was released a couple years later, around 1999. I think it was around 35 40 bucks then. Um, he didn't make a lot of wine, mailing list, you know, allocated. If you could find it now, it's probably 115 So this is not a wine we're tasting that I'm telling my listeners to go out. Um, but I wanted to pull this one out to toast your career. So here's a 97 Foreman. I want to sniff it and taste it with you and cheer you. I have a plastic cup, so don't get mad at me. It's the aromatics are filling up the room, which is nice. All right, so quickly, because we're going to wrap up the show soon, okay. let's talk about color. This is a 20-plus-year-old wine. How's the color look? I have a lot of 1997s. You know why? My my child children were born. One was 90 birth year. 91, 93, 97. Pretty good year. 99. So they have all their, all their wines, and I suggest everybody do that for their children and drink it on their birthday, not with them, but drink it on their birthday. Right. So color, yeah, it's unbelievable. But that's Rick Foreman. Right. I mean, he's getting it's 75 percent, which is you know right there at the line where you can call Cabernet right. Sauvignon. But right. I can't see through it. I cannot Nose. see through it. Pretty good aromatics, right? It's actually uh, uh, very, very good Cabernet um, Bordeauxish style, right? And Rick Foreman. Well, you have three of the Bordeaux blends blended right. in, and twenty-five percent of the Franc and the Merlot. All right, so just give me some descriptors on the nose. Dark fruits, uh, uh, black fruits, plum, black raspberry, black cherry. There's actually even a little cassis in there. All right, now let's taste it. Let's run it over the tongue. I gotta let's cheer. I gotta cheer you this way. I gotta I'll just cheer. I'll hit you. You're so far away, but make cheers believe. to you and right. thank you for coming on. So let's Thanks. talk mouthfeel first. Okay. I know the most important thing to me in tasting is smell. Yep. Yeah, thank you. I'm coming back. When is the show on? Tomorrow? <laughs> Am I coming back tomorrow? Yeah. 
Um, anyhow, 95% of taste, and a lot of people do, I'm into olfactory. 95% of taste smell. is smell. But now when you talk about mouthfeel, i got to find out what it is. This wine is still going strong. And how do I how do I know that? Because there's so much fruit. And you know you hear a California fruit-driven, fruit-driven early. But now that we're getting older, all right, up to almost 20 years of age, this wine is not – this wine can easily go on. I Proves that California is glycerin You know, it's not thinned out at all. The tannins are soft. Very soft tannins. And it's really great acidity. This is why you should wait because probably when this wine came out, it was, there were, you couldn't even get to the acidity because people forget what happens to red wines as they get older. Well, you lose the tannin, you lose the color, but acid stays the same. Right. And so that's – I can feel this right now, the good acidity. This is a perfect wine. Makes it a good perfect wine. Perfect wine. Tell me some descriptors on the palate. Well, again, basically the fruits that I was mentioning there right now, I'm going to call this medium body, medium to full. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's got, uh, like I said, the acidity is perfect. The tannins, I'm going to call them soft around tannins. And, but there is tannin there because you know what I do is I wait 60 seconds to try a wine. I don't, I don't rate a wine until 60 seconds. Cause the first 60 seconds after you taste it? Correct. And the reason being is the first taste of wine is a shock to your taste bud. And I, this is my first taste of wine. So that's the first attack. Right. Then and, there's a mid. And then I actually go back and try it a second time. And, and that's why they don't allow me to be a professional wine judge because I take five minutes to make a decision in a wine. The aftertaste is extremely important. This wine is not dropping off. No. This wine is going. It's this is still, more than a 60-second wine. I haven't taken a sip in a minute or two, and it's still very strong, great, you know, on the palate and everything. Concentrated. Concentrated. So it's holding up really well after 20 years. It's a tribute to Rick Foreman, who's really a real deal guy. Rick started at Sterling. He hooked up with David Abreu. I mean, he's got a terrific career and everything. Um, his wines are always critically acclaimed. They're culty in the sense that people in the industry like them. And they are available. I mean, you could probably go to a Sherry Lehman or a Morel or, you know, some better wine stores and get that. What would you... Let's just talk about pairing, because if a wine has a good acidity, that means it's still not a bad food wine. This, I mean, we talked about the steak in Bordeaux before. What, tell me what's a good pairing with this. Well, you know, this is, doesn't need a sirloin steak, because it doesn't need the fat and the protein, because the tannins are softened. So I would take a filet, filet mignon, or, or a veal chop, or a pork chop. So I don't have to have all that fat. Right. Um, this wine, that's what I would put it. I don't want to overpower this wine. This is a delicate wine. It's elegant wine. So, all right, let's wrap up the segment. So this wine held up really, really well. It's still a terrific wine. How many more years do you think a wine like this would have? Under, under the right conditions, as you just asked about the wine the cellar. The provenance on the, this is my cellar. Okay. I mean, it's been sitting there since 97 perfectly. Well, we got fruit flies in the, in the studio right now, ladies and gentlemen. I'm right. not joking with you. I'm sw- sweeping them away. Um, under the right conditions, I'm going to try it every year, to be honest with you, because things start breaking down. This doesn't right. have any... Of I say aroma, aroma is a young wine. This does, and bouquets ten years later. I'm not getting what I would call bouquet. This wine is still maintaining its aromas. It's yeah. primary primary smell. When I popped the taste. cork, it, it filled up the glass and all that. Well, listen, I did good. I pulled out a good wine. I pulled out the right wine. The nice thing is for me as a cheerleader and follower of California wines that 20 years later, 97 is not even that old of a wine, that it's showing, you know, very well and could rival a lot of other wines. And that's confirmed by Kevin Zraeli. All right, so we're wrapping up. Finally, on the Grape Nation Weekly Wine Calendar, Raw Wine is coming to Brooklyn. It's a two-day celebration of the most exciting collections of fine, natural, organic, and biodynamic wine artisans ever to come together in Brooklyn. Raw Wine takes place on November 6th and 7th from 10A to 6P at 99 Scott Avenue in Brooklyn. 
That's basically an event space. Go to rawwine.com for more info. Um, I would promote Kevin's classes, but Kevin is finishing after 40 years. Get, they should get um, on my, my mailing list. All right. So right now is the time to prompt people to, if they want to stay in touch, know more about you. Where should they Kevin go? Kevin at com. Okay. And kevinsraley.com is, You'll get is the website and all that. Um, if you have a happening or an event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation. I'll get back to you. At some point, as I promised, I will put the wine list answers on uh, one of our sites because I'm sure you'd like to know uh, what Kevin uh, had mentioned earlier. And finally, thank you to our guest, Kevin Zraley. Kevin from the Windows on the World wine course, the Windows on the World books, the Windows on the World. Um, thank you to our engineer, Pierre. And everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, go to heritageradionetwork.org for more info. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.